0: all right so we're uh, going through our series here on encounters with jesus and we've been looking at a few different people that have encountered uh jesus um and and all of the encounters that we've looked at thus far uh their lives have been radically changed and transformed for the better we saw how Peter was, in his interaction with Jesus, was transformed uh, and transformed him profoundly. We saw how Nicodemus was challenged by Jesus with knowledge and teaching about knowing God and about being born again. Uh, we saw about the woman at the well and how she was dumbfounded when she met Jesus and said, this, this man's a prophet because he can see into my life. And that changed her. And last week we saw from the life of Zacchaeus how a visit from Jesus radically changed his life and he wanted to put his life uh, right with God and live uprightly. But today we're going to look at an encounter with Jesus that didn't end well. We're gonna look at an encounter with Jesus that instead of being transformed by this encounter with Jesus, sadly, this person walked away. Sadly, this person turned away from Jesus. And in the Bible, he's known as the rich young ruler. Now, it's found in a few different Gospels. We're going to look at it from Mark chapter 10, which is what Binu read for us this morning. Um, And from the different Gospels, we can put together that this guy was a young man, that he was a ruler, and he was very rich. Now, this story is in stark contrast to what we saw last week with another rich man who was Zacchaeus. See, Zacchaeus... uh, And this rich man were both powerful. They were both rich. But Zacchaeus, after his encounter with Jesus, he said, half of my wealth I'm going to give away to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone because he was a tax collector, he said, I'm going to restore to them four times the amount. So Zacchaeus had a profound transformation. But this rich young ruler, this man who was also rich, sadly, after his encounter with Jesus, he walked away sad. And the reason we have to look at maybe this little sad story is that we have to have this understanding that not everyone who encounters Jesus is going to be radically transformed. Not everyone who comes in contact with Jesus is going to say, hey, Jesus, I surrender to you and I want to do your will. But there are some people that will walk away. Um, That's why we need to study this encounter. We desire for our lives, I hope you desire for your life to be transformed by Jesus but we have to realize that there are some people that this will not happen. When when Jesus walked on this earth, he did amazing miracles and signs and wonders and awesome things. But because of his teachings, there were many that actually walked away from Jesus. It's a reality that we have to understand. So let's learn together and see uh, what we can understand from this story, so that we don't have to walk away sad, and that hopefully we can learn something from this encounter and help us to stay with Jesus. So. Let me just paint for you the picture of who this young man might be in, in modern day context. So sometimes we read this story and we say, okay, this is a, a rich young ruler and maybe we've read this story a number of times. But let me bring this forward to maybe 2020 and just paint for you the picture of what this young man might look like. He, he, he was probably maybe a, a young professional uh, with a very prestigious, prestigious job. Um, he probably worked really hard and excelled really well in his job. Maybe he was an executive in a, in a big company or a, a CEO of a company. A lot of people probably uh, looked at his uh, life and probably thought, man, I, I wish I could be as successful as that guy. I wish I could be as prosperous or as blessed as that guy. But this young man was also a godly man. So he was involved in, in the life of the church probably. He would probably be there on Sunday morning. He was probably involved in a life group. He, was, he could have even been a life group leader or even an elder in, in the church because we see that he was a ruler. He could have been a ruler in the synagogue at that time. Uh, he was probably somebody that volunteered his time. He was honest and, and upright and he was trying to keep all the commandments of God. So if you think of somebody like that in today's modern day times and think of somebody that fits that description, maybe we would look at that person and probably say, man, that kid, he's got his head on right. He's got his priorities straight. He knows what he's doing. He loves God. See how God is prospering his life and his family and his job. He's doing well, right? And if you're a parent here, you would probably be telling your child, why can't you be more like this guy? Right? He, he started out very eager. We see in the story that, that he's running to Jesus and uh he asked Jesus a very profound question. He, he doesn't waste any time. He runs up to Jesus. He actually kneels down, so he's paying some respect or homage to Jesus, understanding that this guy's a wise teacher, a wise person, right? And he asks him a very profound question that maybe sometimes we would ask as well. In Mark 10, verse 17, it says, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running to him. Here's this encounter. He knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, yeah, that's an easy five-second answer. Let me just tell you, and we'll get this all done with. Right? This is a pretty profound question he's asking here. What do I need to do that I can inherit eternal life, that I can live forever? Right? Have you ever asked that question? I think before we can answer this question of what must I do to inherit eternal life, we have to ask the question, what is eternal life? Right? Now, if you were going to live forever and ever, what would be the reason for that? What would you actually want to do? Is there a task or an activity or something that you enjoy that you'd like to do forever and ever? Maybe it's playing a sport, but maybe forever an ever and ever seems a little bit long for a sport, right? Maybe spending time with a loved one. Maybe it's watching TV. What's your hobby? Can you do that forever and ever, right? Are you ready for forever and ever, right? In another place in the Gospels, Jesus actually gives us the answer to what is eternal life. John 17 and verse 3 says, now this is life eternal, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, this is eternal life. Eternal life is for all eternity to know God and to know Jesus. Does that sound intriguing and awesome to you? Or do you think, man, 10 years might be good, but after that, it might get a little boring. Well, this is what eternal life is. To know God and to know Jesus for all eternity to get to know this powerful, all-wise, gentle, kind, loving God. So this young man came to Jesus, and I believe very sincerely, not like some of the other Pharisees. We read some other stories in the gospel of the, the Pharisees coming to Jesus, trying to trap him in his words, trying to catch him saying something. I think this young man was really sincere before the Lord. And he came and he wanted to know God. He wanted eternal life. How about us today? Do we desire eternal life? Do we desire that relationship with God? Do we desire to know God more and more? Do we desire to know that all-wise, all-knowing, powerful creator who knows us intimately, who loves us deeply and longs to be in relationship with us. See, Jesus came down to this world and died on the cross so that he could pay the penalty for our sin. And today, if you don't know Jesus, and today, if you don't know what it is to know a loving God and be in relationship with him, I want to encourage you to come and talk to one of us. There'll be people here after the service to be able to pray with you. Because Jesus desires to know you and to be known by you. He desires to be in relationship with you. And he died on the cross and he rose again in order to provide that for us so that we can have eternal life with him. Don't walk away. It's possible to walk away. This young man did. He walked away after this encounter with Jesus. Even though he started off with good desires, he ended up walking away very sad. The young man even called Jesus good, to which Jesus responded why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Now, some Christians have a problem with this because, or some other people have a problem with this, and they they might say, well, is Jesus saying that he's not good? Or is Jesus saying that he's not God? Right? But what I think Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to get the young man to think carefully about what goodness actually is. Because it's what actually transpires in the rest of the conversation. He, he doesn't ask the young man directly and say, he doesn't ask if he thinks that Jesus himself is good. He doesn't ask the young man whether he himself, the young man, is good. But rather, he causes him to think by making the statement, only God is good, right? Mark 10 and verse, verse 18. Only God is truly good. Because if Jesus is God, and if Jesus is also good, then what Jesus is about to say next has great value. Can you see that? This young man comes to Jesus and says, good master. The acknowledgement that Jesus is good, the acknowledgement that he is God, right? And Jesus says, only God is good. But if this young man says, Lord, you're good, you're the good master, then what Jesus is about to say to this young man has great weight. Because this young man even kneeled before Jesus. and said, what do I do to inherit eternal life? So now what Jesus, we're going to see this in a moment, what Jesus says in the rest of this conversation is, becomes all the more weighty. It becomes all the more important. It becomes all the more crucial to this whole interaction. But I think if, if we ponder about this thing about goodness, we can ask ourselves, what is true goodness? Now, in the summer, we went through the series on the fruit of the Spirit, and we talked about goodness as an aspect of God's character. But I think Jesus also wants the young man to consider, what are the implications of acknowledging that God is good. What are the implications of saying and acknowledging, yes, God is good, because what does that mean for my life? If God is good, then what does that mean for the decisions, the changes, and the surrender that I need to make if I recognize this aspect of God that he is good? Jesus asked, why are you calling me good? If the young man sees Jesus as good, and that is a divine quality, then what does that make Jesus? It's actually an affirmation of his divinity. And I think finally, another thing we need to think about is how do you live up to this goodness? Because we're going to get into another conversation right now, right? The question is, how do you live up to this kind of goodness? If God is good and he's truly good, then how do you live up to that goodness? Are we a good person? Was this young man a good person? Uh, it's important to understand some of these things and think about some of these things because of what ensues in the rest of this conversation. So so Jesus answers his question about eternal life, and Jesus says, you, you need to keep the commandments, and he goes on to summarize some of them. He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't testify falsely, don't cheat or lie, honor your father and mother. Jesus summarizes these commandments, and I think he's summarizing them with a hope that the young man might acknowledge, yeah, I really fail." Anyone here, if you read through some of these commandments, can you say, oh yeah, I'm good, right? I, I have no problem. I've done all these things. Well, Romans 3, verse 23 says that we all have sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. But this young man, how did he answer? Mark 10, verse 20 says, Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. In essence, what the young man is saying is... I've been, good, I've been a good boy. Do I get the prize now? I've done all of these things from since I was young. Can I get eternal life now? But what he's missed is the fact that there is a huge gap between the goodness that he perceived and thought and God's goodness. Because he came and said, good master, and Jesus clearly said, hold on. There's one person that's good, and that's God. Do you understand that young man? And then he goes on to this conversation and says, You got to do this and this. And the young man says, Hey, I'm good. I've done all, I've been a good boy, Jesus. Now can I get eternal life? And he still hasn't gotten the message. He still hasn't seen that there's this huge gap between what he perceives as good and what the goodness of God actually is. He missed the biggest clue when Jesus, from the very beginning, said, There is none good but God. He wasn't following along in the conversation, right? I hope you're following along with me. Are you all with me here? Okay, don't lose track here. So there's this big gap here. Instead of saying, Jesus, I'm a failure, he said, Jesus, I'm pretty good. Can you let me in, please? Instead of saying, Jesus, I need you. Like some of these things he said, anyone here, you've not lied before? Anyone here, you haven't honored your, you always honored your father and mother for your whole life? Like, that's a pretty tall order there. But this young man says, I kept all of these things from when I was a small boy. I'm, I'm good. Can I get the prize? He missed the biggest clue right from the beginning when Jesus tried to lay it out for him. I'm reminded of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus told this parable of the Pharisee and tax collector. They both went up into the house of God and the Pharisee prayed and he said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this This uh, tax collector, and I tithe of everything I have, and I do this, and I do that, and oh, I'm such an amazing, wonderful person. Aren't you glad that you have me, God? And the tax collector came to the house of God, and he prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said that tax collector went home justified, not the Pharisee. In Luke 18... This parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is found in that chapter. And right after, almost right after that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, comes the story of this rich young ruler in Luke's gospel. Maybe the rich young ruler overheard the parable. Maybe he didn't really learn from it. It's interesting because as we saw last week about Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was also a tax collector. He responded quite differently to Jesus. He responded in, in repentance. The presence of Jesus caused him to repent. But, but this brings us to another question, is that did Jesus leave out a commandment or two? Have you noticed that any other place in the New Testament, when you talk about commandments, when you talk about what is important to God, there's something else that's stated. Can anyone help me out here? What, what else is normally stated in commandments? When, when people list commandments, this do this commandment, this is the most important one. Love what? Love the Lord your God and? And See, even you all know that, right? It's it's, it's something that's very common. We've read this. We all know that. So why did Jesus leave those two out on this list? It seems quite apparent. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 40. See, the, the rich young ruler didn't bring this up. Jesus didn't bring this up. In another place, when a Pharisee came and Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. But for some reason, these two commandments, which seem to be the obvious ones to mention, like when you ask the question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Tell me, would you go with these two commandments or the list that Jesus gave? Help me out here. What do you think? You'd probably go with the two commandments, right? Like, th- these two commandments of love God and love others seem much more apparent to inheriting eternal life instead of do not kill, do not... Now, those are important as well, too, right? I'm not down- downplaying those. But there's so many places where here even it says that the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two. The, the question that the young man asked about eternal life, remember, we said eternal life is about knowing God? knowing Jesus, so why did Jesus leave out these two commandments? I think Jesus knew the heart of that young man, and I think if Jesus included these two commandments, he would not have been able to reply and say, yes, master, I have kept all of these things. But I also think that the reason he didn't include these two commandments was not because Jesus wanted a verbal response of yes, master, I will do this, or yes, master, I've done this. I think the reason why Jesus didn't include these two commandments is because of the the thing that Jesus was gonna ask next. Because Jesus was gonna ask this young man something really difficult to do that would be a reflection of A, his love for God, and B, his love for others. So I'm gonna skip ahead. We read that verse in the story. Jesus says, there's one thing you're lacking. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. It's a tall order, but it, was a reflection, it would be a reflection of his love for Jesus. And giving all of his possessions to the poor, or selling it, selling it and then giving that money to the poor, would be a reflection of his love for others. And so Jesus didn't want a verbal answer to say, yes, I've done this all. Yes, I have kept these two commandments. No. What Jesus was going to challenge him was say, hey, can you do this? And actually by doing this, you are fulfilling and responding to this. What Jesus wanted was not a verbal response. He wanted an actionable response. What Jesus wanted to see was, as they say, the proof is in the pudding. He wanted to see an actual response here. Because he says here in Mark 10, verse 21, there's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. It wasn't about Jesus listing the two commandments. It was about the young man showing and demonstrating his response to these two commandments. Sell all your possessions so that you can follow me was an act, is an act of love for God. Later on in this story, we read in verse 28, Peter goes to Jesus and he says, Hey, Jesus, you know, we, the apostles, we've sold everything to follow you. We've given up everything to follow you. Jesus now is challenging that young man to do the same thing. And to give his money to the poor in order to show his love for others. Was he up to the challenge? Sadly, his encounter with Jesus left him sad. He couldn't love Jesus with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his mind. The question now is, what about us? Are we up for this challenge? You know, Jesus doesn't leave us alone in that, and he didn't leave that young man alone either. Look at what it says here in I'm just showing you the second part of Mark 21. You know what the first part of Mark 21 says? It talks about Jesus' genuine love for that young man. It says there, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Do you remember when we talked about Peter and Jesus gave that look to Peter and it just broke Peter? I don't know, I think this was a similar look, right? It It was a look of love. My son, I love you, my son, I care for you. Why? First, John tells us that the reason we love is because he first loved us. For this young man to respond and say, yes, Lord, I'm willing to give up everything. I'm willing to sell all my possessions and give to the poor. I'm willing to sacrifice all of that. I'm willing to surrender all. I'm willing to give everything to you. He first needed to experience that love from Jesus. And so Jesus looked at him with love. We love him because he first loved us. And even though this young man tried to proclaim his own goodness, and he may have done a lot of good things in his life, no doubt, Jesus expressed this genuine love to this young man. And right after this statement, this is really what the whole verse says, Mark 10, verse 21, it says, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Then Jesus says, there is still one thing, you haven't done. And I think when Jesus looks at us and when we come to a place of surrender and sacrifice, when we come to a place of yielding all and surrendering all to Jesus, it's in response to his great love for us. It's impossible to be able to surrender to Jesus without experiencing that love. It's impossible to be able to say, Lord, I surrender all. Lord, I give all. Lord, I'm willing to sacrifice. Lord, I'm willing to sell all my possessions and give that to the poor and follow you. It's impossible to do that without an experience of love. Jesus is so kind and gracious and loving. You know, our response of love is in response to Jesus' love for us. Jesus looked on him with love, compassion, kindness. And I also think hope. I think Jesus had hope for this young man because he asked him to do something that he doesn't usually ask everyone to do. How many times do you think Jesus asked someone to do something this big? This was a huge request. This was a huge ask. And I think the bigger the request, the bigger the ask, the bigger the potential. The bigger the ask, the bigger the way God wants to use that person. So here's the question. What is God asking you? What is God saying, my son, my daughter, surrender to me, give this up. And let me tell you, the bigger the ask, the bigger the request, the bigger the hope, the bigger the potential. This young man had so much potential. God wanted to use this young man and he said, sell everything you have and come and follow me. We're gonna look at another encounter later on in this series about a man that was, was healed by Jesus and he begged Jesus and said, can I follow you? And Jesus said, no, don't. This young man was given the opportunity, come and follow me. Oh, it was a big price that he had to pay. It was a big ask. Oh, but I think there was so much hope there. Sometimes we think, Oh, God is asking me to give up this thing, and God is asking me to give up that thing, and God is asking me to do this thing, and God is asking me to do that thing. And we lose sight of two things. We lose sight of the person asking, and we lose sight of the motive of that person asking. And let me tell you, both those two things are love. The person asking is God, and the Bible says God is love. And the motive behind that ask is also love. God is asking because he is love, and the reason he's asking is because of love. And he's saying, my child, can you do this? Jesus looked on that young man with love, and Jesus being the embodiment, the personification of love, said, my son, can you do this? Can you give up this? And I believe God is asking us today to surrender all. I believe God is asking us today to yield to him. I believe God is asking us to come to him just with open arms and say, Lord, here I am, whatever you're asking me. And it's not that it's going to be something that's hard and difficult to do because we realize it's asked by a person of love because God is love and it's asked by a motivation of love. If your husband and wife asks you to do something and they're asking out of love, doesn't that make it all the more easier to do? Even if it's difficult? Oh, because I love him, I'll do it. Oh, because I love her, I'll do it. Oh, I know he loves me, that's why I'll do it. Oh, I know she loves me, that's why I'll do it. See, Jesus looked on that young man with love because he saw so much potential there. He saw so much hope there. And he looked on him with love and he said, please, young man, can you do this? I'm asking you as the God of love and I'm asking you with the motivation of love. First John 4 says, we know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. At the end of the day, when all is said and done, it's all about love. The two greatest commandments, love God and love others. And Jesus in love is trying to draw this young man to this beautiful experience. And outwardly, and if we just read it, we'll just look at that and say, what? This is crazy. You're asking him to give up everything? You're asking him to sell everything to follow you? Jesus, are you sure? This is crazy. But if it's asked from a God of love with a motivation of love, if it's asked from a good God, do you remember at the beginning, the first question was, only God is good. If it's asked from a good God who has good thoughts for us and good plans for us and wants to do good to us in our latter end, isn't anything that he asks worth it? Isn't anything that he's asking us to do worth it? No matter how crazy it sounds, no matter how impossible it sounds, if it comes from a good God, a God of love, oh, he loves to do good to us. Which brings us to the next question. See, the young man, instead of looking into those eyes of love and focusing on Christ, he was focusing on his riches. His eyes were in the wrong place. He didn't focus on that love. Instead, he focused on his riches. Which brings us to the next question. Who's on the podium of your life? For the young man, it was his riches. Jesus saw through everything else. And he realized that to get to the heart of the issue, to get to full surrender, this young man needed to surrender his riches. A few weeks ago, we were studying through the Sermon on the Mount, and one statement that Jesus made about the heart and riches is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. See, Jesus went to the heart of the issue. And even without listing those two famous commandments, is your heart with the Lord? Or is it with your treasure? See, this young man was, the title of this message is Trapped with Treasure. This young man was trapped with his treasure. He could, he could escape the trap of riches, but he went away sad. And many times that happens to us. First Timothy, Paul says in First Timothy 6 that people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires. That plunge them into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is root of all kinds of evil. See, for this man it was his riches, but for us it could be something else. What has us trapped? What treasure has us trapped? Money is not inherently evil. We need money, but there are things that may not be evil, but it traps us and it holds us back from loving the Lord with our whole heart, soul. And mind. So, we have this nice little podium. Thanks, Keisha. The question is where is Jesus? Is he number three in your heart? Maybe not. Is he number two in your heart? Or does Jesus want to be number one? There's so many other things that can take us away from putting God first in our life. It could be our family. It could be our job. These are not bad or wrong or evil things, but it shouldn't be in the first place. It could be our family. It could be our job. It could be our wealth. It could be so many different things, right? My fiance Laura, is in Winnipeg right now. She's watching on live stream, I believe. Laura, you're over here, number two. (laughs) Sorry, sweetheart, I love you, but you're number two. And she knows that. Because for both of us, we hope and we want and we'll be challenged by this. We'll be tried by this. I know the Lord will test us with this. is to make sure that Jesus is number one. So is he number one? Or is he number two? Or is he number three? Maybe he's not this high. Maybe he's down here. Or maybe he's down here. Or down here? Or down here? Or down here? No way, I hope, I amen to that, no way. See, it could be our family, it could be our job, it could be our education, it could be our reputation, it could be our identity, it could be our past, it could be our talents, it could be our ministry, how we serve the Lord, it could be our volunteer work, it could be our leisure time, it could be our own time, our friends, our entertainment, Sports, hobbies, what comes first in our life? See, our values and what we deem to be important will reveal what's really first place in our heart. There was a man named Ryan Callis. He was a surfer and he was an artist. And the Lord gifted him to be an artist for the glory of God. But he also loved music. And he was part of a group of people that they would pray in order to give generously to others. And on the fifth week that this group got together, the leader of the group challenged them, the other members in the group, to find something in their life that would be difficult and challenging to sell, and to sell it and give the money away. And he said as soon as he heard it, he felt a chill come down on his back, and he knew the Lord was speaking to him, and the Lord told him, your record collection. He loved music. And he had a whole bunch of records. But he took those records and he went and he sold it. That Sunday, there was a need that had come up and he knew right away, this is what I need to give to. And he gave it. And he said it was such a freeing and liberating experience. Again, there's so many different things that it could be. For the rich young ruler, it was his wealth, it was his money. But for us, it could be something different. The question is, what is that thing that's on first place? What is that thing that's on, in, in, on top in the podium? And we can give Jesus the verbal response and say, no, Lord, I love you with all my heart, whole, soul, strength, and mind. But Jesus didn't want to hear that from the rich young ruler. He wanted to see him do it. Jesus wasn't happy with just acknowledging that commandment. I think that's why the commandment is not even listed. Because we can all do that. We can all say verbally, yes, Jesus is number one. But is he? Oh, our actions speak way louder than our words, and we'll be challenged, and there's times that we'll fail. I know I failed many times to put Jesus in the first place, and that's when I need to come back to him and say, Lord, I failed. Lord, please forgive me. Lord, help me to put you back in the proper place that you belong. So so let's go back to the initial question he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I, I think I would challenge the young man on this point. Here's the question. Was he really concerned with eternal life? Are we really concerned with eternal life? See, our decisions, our actions, our conduct, our priorities will reflect our values and what we hold important. At the beginning of this conversation he was concerned with eternal life. At the end of this conversation, what was he concerned with? His money. Can you see how that changed and how the truth actually came out of his heart? See, at the beginning, he asked this wonderful, profound question. Good master, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Tell me and I'll do it. And Jesus gave him a short amount of things and he said, Lord, I've done it. I'm a good boy. Can I get the prize? But at the end of the conversation... He wasn't concerned about eternal life. He was concerned about his wealth. That's the challenge that we have today as well. We can say we're concerned about eternal life, but are we really? Is there something else that's more important? Mark 10, verse 22 says At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. If we're focused on the things of this world, the things that take a higher priority than the Lord, than loving him, serving him, and doing his will, then we'll walk away sad, just like this young man. And this might be something that's very hard. Even the disciples found it hard, right? Maybe you're finding it hard to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're finding it difficult to surrender to Jesus. Maybe you're finding it difficult to put Jesus on the podium of your life. It all goes back to the first statement by the young man. Good teacher. If we believe that God is good and in that goodness, he has a good plan for our life, then even something crazy like selling everything we have and giving to the poor comes from who? The good hand of God because he has a good plan for our life. If we believe in the intrinsic goodness of God. If we believe that God truly is good, even the most difficult and hardest things that he asks us to do and surrender, we can do because we know it comes from a good God, a loving master who has our good in his mind. He has thoughts of peace to give us an expected end. It all comes from the good hand But it's difficult. Even the disciples found it very difficult. But you know what? There's hope. Do you know why there's hope? Because Jesus makes the impossible possible. Jesus said, it was easier for a camel. like Jesus. This is a great metaphor here. I love this. Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Can you imagine that? A camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. But praise God that what's impossible with men... With us is possible with God. Mark 10, verse 26 and 27. The disciples were astounded. They were shocked. Like, Lord, if this is the case, like, no one's gonna be saved. Lord, if this is the case, where are we all gonna end up? And Jesus says, Jesus looked on them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But not with God. Everything is possible with God. Whatever situation you find yourself in today, let me tell you that God specializes in the impossible. If you feel like today you've never given your heart to Jesus, you've never committed your life to Christ, and you're thinking, this is so hard, this is so difficult, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I've heard this message over and over and over again. I've heard the message of salvation over and over and over again, and I can't do this. It's hard. Let me tell you, you're in a good place because Jesus specializes in the impossible. And if you find yourself struggling to surrender and if you find yourself saying, it's hard to follow Jesus, it's hard to put him in the first place in my life, let me tell you, Jesus gives us hope because he specializes in the impossible. And if you're going through a difficulty and a trial today and you're finding it difficult to trust him, to surrender to him, to yield to him, realize that God is with us. Realize that Jesus makes the impossible possible. So trust him. Surrender to him. Let's keep our eyes on him, not on other things. And he'll make the impossible possible for us to inherit eternal life with a good God who cares for us, loves us, and wants to know us, that desires to be in relationship with us. I'll close with just a story of a man named David Dale Davis. He was often called D.D. Davis, he was very much like that rich young ruler. Ravi Zacharias, some of you have heard of Ravi Zacharias. He is the founder of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and has traveled all, the, all over the world, going into schools and universities especially, and speaking uh, in very hostile environments. And he's a great apologist, a defender of the faith. Ravi Zacharias, years and years ago, decades ago, he was flying back from India and he told his wife that he saw the need that so many people were asking questions and he wanted to train to become an apologist. At the time, he was a professor and the head of a department, but he felt that God wanted him to start a new organization in Christian apologetics. And his wife said, we have three kids. How are you going to do this? And he responded and he said, you know, if somebody gave us $50,000, then I believe God would guide us. It was, it was 1983, and it was a lot of money at that time. He told her, don't tell anybody, don't even tell your parents. He had to give one year's notice, so in August of 1983, he resigned or gave his notice. In November, he was speaking at an event in, in Ohio. About 250 people were there. And at the end, he just asked for prayer, prayer for his family. After the event, a man came up to him and wanted to speak to him. And he came up and he told me, he said, I went to my room after the event and I got down on my knees and I prayed and I asked, Lord, what do you want me to do for this young couple? And the Lord told him, give him $50,000. And Ravi Zacharias was shocked when he came and he told him. And he says, you don't even know me. And D.D. Davis said, I'm going to trust you. Ravi Zacharias still couldn't believe it. And he said, I've never taken a check that large from a stranger. Can, can we get together and set up a meeting and can we talk? And so they did that. And he shared his calling to be an apologist, to, to take the gospel into hostile environments. Ravi Zacharias said, quote, I want to go to those who are haters of the gospel and have questions. And D.D. Davis said, you know What? I never went to school, I ran away from home when I was 18, I will stand behind you, go do it. And for the next 18 years, D.D. Davis supported Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He didn't want anything in return, not even a phone call. He would sit and listen to Ravi preach like a father listening to his son and he would just give him a nod. He even gathered other businessmen to come and support Ravi Zacharias and his ministry. When he passed away, when D.D. Davis passed away, his daughters came in and asked Rabbi Zacharias to preach at his funeral. He was also a big supporter of Gideon Bibles. He was always giving Gideon Bibles out. A few days after he died, his chief accountant called Rabbi Zacharias and introduced himself and said that he was the one that managed all of his funds and his accounts. And that accountant recounted the verse to Rabbi Zacharias and said, you remember where it says, where a man's treasure is there his heart also is and he asked him if he had been to davis's home apparently it was a small tiny little bungalow in youngstown ohio the driveway was so narrow that it couldn't even he didn't even have room for two cars he didn't even lock his house because he said if anybody wants it that bad they can take it but he gave away millions and millions of dollars to support the gospel To support the kingdom of God. Then his accountant said this to to Ravi Zacharias He said, Mr. Zacharias, I'm just calling to tell you how much he loved you. And it dawned on me that the first time Mr. Davis ever had a mansion of his own was the night he passed away. This was a man who stored up treasure in heaven. It was a man who was willing to give up everything for the gospel, to see the kingdom of God expand, to see people come to know the Lord. This was a man who put Christ first. This was a man whose actions reflected what was in his heart. This was a man who surrendered all to Jesus. We might not have millions of dollars. We might have $10 or even $1. It's not about the money. It's not about the, the amount. Sometimes it's not even about money. There's other things that it could be, as we mentioned. Job, house, car, relationships, people, reputation, hobbies? Are we willing to put Jesus first? Worship team, please come. Are we willing to surrender all to Jesus? If Jesus challenges us today, can we say, Lord, I surrender all. Lord, I give you all. Let's sing to the Lord today.